Hey, before I dive in today, just a couple of things that I want to mention. And the first thing is that during this prayer and praise time next week, we're going to be taking communion together. And so I want to let you know about that now so that next week you can have some juice and maybe a piece of bread with you so that we can do this together. Second thing I want to mention, Larry and I both have said there's a few folks in the room with us. And uh, we've got some staff and families and some of our council over the last several weeks that we've been letting in the room. And part of that is um, that right now, and I'm just going to kind of leak this out a little bit to you, we're making plans that uh, in October, October, we would start opening up to limited services. And so we're working on dividing up our space and, and, uh, and letting folks start to come in and be a part of what we're doing. And we're, we're figuring out how to do that legally. And so look for that announcement in the next few weeks. And in October, just in a few weeks, uh, you're going to have a chance to actually be here with us. And we're excited about that. And now I also just want to welcome you. I want to welcome everybody, but I especially want to welcome those of you that are, that are watching from Bridgeport Church. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that in this next season, uh, our two churches are, are really mer merging together. We're partnering together in this season. And, uh, and I just look forward to what God's going to do already. Um, I've just been seeing God do amazing things. Um, but those of you that are joining us and you're a part of this, we just want to welcome you. And, and we love what God's been doing in your community of faith at Bridgeport. We love um, just praying about what the future is going to look like and knowing that God has great things for all of us in our great city. And, uh, and I think this is a part of what he's doing. So I welcome you guys. I look forward to seeing you in person as well very soon. Um, also, if you're just joining us, whether you're from Bridgeport or anyone else just tuning in, uh, the last couple of weeks, um, we are in this next few weeks, we're in the closing weeks of a series in the book of Acts that's called When the World Turned Upside Down. We've been walking through the book of Acts and we've been um, taking that phrase, when the world ups turned upside down, not from our culture, but actually from a line in Acts chapter 17, where it says that the disciples of Jesus were literally turning the world upside down, that the way they were living, the way they were conducting themselves was flipping culture upside down. And, and our hope during this season was that we would be the kind of people, that we would be those kind of people who would influence culture in that way more than having culture influence us in any other way, which is a really kind of a perfect segue into this message. Um, because I'm a little concerned that our culture is shaping us right now more than we're shaping it. And, and the reason I, I say that is rooted in the volatility that I'm observing these days. Um, we are experiencing volatility in our society right now. Um, now, we, we've all heard enough about this roller coaster of 2020. I don't think I can take another joke about 2020. I don't know, want to know about Godzilla coming out of the ocean, anything like that. We've all made the jokes. Uh, I think it's a foregone conclusion that 2020 is going to go down in at least recent history books as an incredibly volatile year. The circumstances, the events have been volatile. But what's been equally unsettling is the volatility of people during these uncertain days. Like, I'm sure you've noticed this, but people are on edge, right? People are on edge. Tension is in the air. Emotions are running hot in our culture right now. So, so, so we, have, we have circumstantial volatility, but we also have human volatility right now. It's like these two separate categories. And, and so I've just been thinking about this lately. I've been, I've been kind of pondering this, and I, and I realized this. We cannot control the circumstances. We all know this. We understand this. The weather, a pandemic, the economic market, the job market, you, the list goes on of all of the things that we have literally zero control over. We can't do anything about those. But we can control ourselves. So where is this human volatility coming from? 
Where is this human volatility rooted? I understand circumstantial volatility. We don't have any control over it. Stuff just happens. But if we can control ourselves, if we have some sort of influence over our own behavior, where is this thing rooted and where is it coming from? And the longer this year goes on and the more I think about this, the more I consider this, the more the answer becomes clear to me. And let me just share this with you. There is a direct connection between our stability and our identity. There is a direct connection between our stability in the middle of volatile times and where we find our identity. Where you find your identity will also determine your stability which makes sense then of all the volatility that we're witnessing in our culture right now. Human volatility is on the rise because the underpinnings, the foundation from where people find their identity, those foundations are being attacked. Those foundations are unstable. And so as a result of that, their lives are being volatile, right? They're responding emotionally. There's all these tensions because of what's taking place. Human volatility is on the rise because their identity is being attacked. Now, I don't don't need to to get into great detail to, to pull back the curtain on what's happening. But let me just say this. If a person's identity is rooted in safety, well, things don't feel very safe right now, do they? Especially if you live in our region, right? If your identity is rooted in health, Things don't feel very healthy right now, right? If it's found in job security, there's there's not a lot of job security right now. If it's in a life of going out on the town and enjoying a meal or catching a movie or hanging out with friends, well, that's just awkward right now, right? If that's where you find identity, that's a really tough place to find identity right now. You get the point of this. We could go down the list of these things. So human volatility is on the rise because the sources of human identity are being challenged. And so things just feel unstable. So identity right now in our culture is in crisis. Identity is in crisis. Now, um, my heart for you my heart for all of us, my heart for everyone, is that during these days, we would experience the opposite of chaos, that we would experience stability that transcends the circumstances, a stability that keeps us from being hijacked by the breaking news that we see on the TV, a stability that guards us from getting detoured by these daily events that seem to be taking place. That's my heart for you. My heart is that we would be a people that all this stuff is going on and we just sort of sit there and we're, we're just kind of comfortable in the middle of it. Like there's something about us that's different. That's my heart. I, I want to I know that you are walking through the middle of these messes with a grace and a peace that is uncommon in our culture right now. That's my hope for us. And the only way I know to help you with that is to talk about our identity, which makes the text that we're looking at today particularly relevant for us. We're going to pick up in the book of Acts today where we left off. Um, We're going to move over a little bit of detail that took place. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Um, When we pick up in Acts chapter 22, we're picking up in the middle of an event that started in Acts chapter 21. And I want to just give you a little background, a little detail of what was taking place before we read this. Um, The apostle Paul, as we learned last week, was um, feeling like the Lord was leading him back to Jerusalem. He'd been on a missionary journey, planting churches in Asia. And he just sensed the, the 
fact that God wanted him back in Jerusalem. Simultaneously, he was also getting this very deep sense that when he got to Jerusalem, there was going to be hardship there. In fact, there were other people that came to him. There's actually this really crazy moment right right after what we read last week where somebody comes and physically binds him and says, this is what's gonna happen to you when you get to the city of Jerusalem. His friends were warning him. They're saying, don't go. And yet Paul felt this determination in his heart. I've got to go to the city of Jerusalem. And so he does that. In chapter 21, he goes to Jerusalem, he lands on the ground, he meets with the church leaders there. They are at one moment excited that he's there and at another moment incredibly fearful because they know what's about to take place. Well, the apostle Paul, he decides he's gonna go to the temple and he goes to the temple and while he's going there, there are people in the city who recognize him. They see him. And they know what Paul has been up to. There are some people who know what he's been teaching. They knew that Paul had been saying throughout the entire Roman Empire, you know these sacrifices that people have been doing? You know these rituals that people have been participating in? You know all of these rules that they've been obeying? They don't really make you clean before God. They don't really do what we thought they did. It's only Jesus who can actually reconnect you with God. It's not some ritual that you can engage in. And so they know he's been sharing that message. They know he's been going out the empire and saying to Gentiles and non-Jews, you know what, you too can worship the one true God, this Yahweh, you can worship him. And so there's this sense that he's been violating their sensibilities. And so they see him. They see him in the temple and they recognize him. And there's sort of this moment where it's like, wait a second. Isn't that Saul? What is he doing here? Is he he gonna come to this place and is he going to subvert more people into believing this whole God is love, grace covers everything message? Like we don't need any more of that around here, right? Because that does all sorts of damage when people really know that God loves them. That's something you can't let people know, right? So, So they don't want any trouble with them. And so they can't have that. And so we read in Acts chapter 21, they literally rush Paul in the temple. They tackle him. They begin beating him. They're tearing at him. Now, because it's a Roman occupied state, down the street and around the corner, there's like a Roman battalion and they hear this ruckus that's taking place up at the temple. And so these Roman centurions, they start running up to the temple. And when they get there, there's an all out brawl taking place in the temple and Paul's at the center of it. And so there's this crazy picture where they go diving in and they're separating. And it literally says that the Roman centurions are trying to make sense of the situation, but they're so much noise, there's so much chaos that they literally can't hear what's being said. So everyone's screaming, everyone's fighting. And then the Roman centurion decides, if we're going to make sense of this, we got to get this guy out of here. So literally, they throw Paul on their back above the crowd and they begin running out of the temple and they're going to take him to the barracks where they live and where their prison is. They're going to take him there and then they'll investigate what's taking place. And so while they're going, the crowd is pursuing them. They're screaming at Paul. They're screaming at the centurions, take him away. They come to the steps up to their barracks and as they're climbing the steps, the crowd's sort of separating from these soldiers. As they get to the top of the steps, something incredibly strange happens. In fact, it's so weird and yet it's strangely applicable to us. Paul, while he's being carried, says to the guy carrying him, he says, hey, do you mind if I say something right now? In other words, can I offer a speech? Which I'm not very much like Paul. I'd be like, can you get me inside so they don't kill me? But he says, can I, can, I, can I say something right now? The only catch was this. He says it in Greek. And the moment he speaks Greek, 
This Roman centurion who has just snatched this individual out of the temple is blown away because he had no idea that this was a Greek-speaking person. This meant likely that he was a citizen of Rome. And so almost immediately, he asks this question. In, in Acts chapter 21, verse 38, this guy who's carrying him along with all these soldiers, he says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? That's who he thought he grabbed. Not some Jewish Christian teacher who's been traveling the world. He, he hears him speak Greek and he's like, wait a second, I thought you were a terrorist. I didn't know who you were. Like, who is this guy? By the way, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, this is some of that stuff you read in the Bible. You're like, anyone that says this is fictional or made up, you can't make this stuff up. Like, literally, can you imagine Paul like, what? Am I not who? Am I not the Egyptian terrorist who led a revolt? It's almost comical when you think about it. But let me just think about this. Let me ask you to think about this. Have you ever heard something circle back that was said about you that was a rumor or completely untrue? That happens, doesn't it? Uh, it, it happens to all of us. There are rumors, there are accusations, there are assumptions. And those are very real things in our society. People hear something out of context or, or somebody has an ax to grind and so they read into something that you said or there's blanks in a conversation and so they fill in the blanks with the wrong vocabulary. Uh, maybe they got bad information and that bad information got spread to other people and at some point it circles back around and you hear it and you go, wait, people are saying what? Like that's the furthest thing from the truth. The, the point is that this thing happens and you can imagine with Paul in this moment thinking, what in the world is going on with my life? On one side, I have all of these devout Jews who I'm trying to enlighten who think that I'm here to undermine faithfulness to God. They could be further from the truth. I'm just trying to open their minds. And on the other hand, I got these guys that think I'm an Egyptian terrorist, right? Like, does anybody actually know who I am? Does anybody know my true identity? It's outrageous. It's tumultuous. And if there was ever a moment of instability that could have rattled his identity, it would have been this one. But Paul's identity is completely intact. So he convinces this guy. He says, can I speak to them? Can I talk to them? And in the middle of his defense, Paul reveals the basis of his identity and the source of his stability. And so I want us to take a look at this together. He turns to address the mob. Acts chapter 22, verse one, the soldier puts him down and he begins to speak. And he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Basically, he says, listen, I'm one of you. And not just one of you, I am a well-trained one of you, well-educated one of you. And then he continues in verse four. He says, listen, I persecuted this way to the death, talking about Christianity, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were also there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So not only was I one of you, but I actually tortured these Christians. I'm actually responsible for the death of these Christians. But then something happened that changed the tra trajectory of Paul's life. Look at verse six. 
He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. We're closing in on the part that I really love here. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And then this is good. Listen to this. Ananias said to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's Paul's story. I was like you. And then this thing happened to me. And now this is who I am. And he makes this identity statement. So how do you find the peace of mind? How do you find the presence of mind to stand in a moment that is this chaotic, that is this tumultuous, that is this crazy, this uncertain? How do you find the presence of, of, of mind to know, I don't even know what the consequences of this are going to be, and to give this kind of speech and to offer this sort of clarity? How do you do that? I mean, here he stands in the middle of all this chaos, kind of like all the chaos that we're in, and he is just poised and he's patient, and he's calm. You can almost just imagine him just taking a nice deep breath, just, it's okay. It's okay. How is it possible? And I sort of wonder this. Could it be that one of the reasons for the rise of Christianity, the reason so many people believed this message of Jesus, and the reason the church grew the way that it did, was that the followers of Jesus exhibited so much poise and peace in the face of daunting circumstances like these? Could, could it be that they just looked and saw people like Paul at a moment like this, standing on those stairs? I mean, you can imagine people in the crowd looking up and going, man, I don't understand this. Like, we're trying to kill him. Soldiers are trying to arrest him. And he seems to have the peace of God on him. And you can imagine them just saying, I want what that guy has right there. I want that sense of identity. So, so, so what did Paul possess that made him that way? Where was his identity rooted? How could he have that kind of stability? Well, I mean, the flippant, churchy answer, if you've been around church a while, the answer that we would say was, well, he had his identity rooted in Christ, right? He found his identity in Christ. But I think we have to be more specific than that. What does that even mean? What does it mean to have your identity in Christ? We can say that thing and somebody can put it on a bumper sticker or they can put it on a patch and sew it to their jacket, whatever they want to do. My identity is in Christ. But beyond just a moniker, what does it really mean to have your identity in Christ? Because if our identity is the source of our stability, then we better know what it means to have our identity in Christ. And so what does that actually mean? 
So I'm looking at this text this week, and I'm praying, I'm studying, I'm wrestling with this, these words. As I'm looking at what Paul says, they begin to sort of emerge off the page. And I notice that what Paul seems to hang on to over and over again through the course of his life, and he talks about it here in Acts 22, it's the words that Ananias spoke over him in that first moment when he's coming to sight and knowing Jesus for who he is. Let me just read these things again, because we find our answer in what Ananias describes. But I want, I want to do something different. As I read these words that Ananias spoke over Paul, I want you to hear these words as if they're being spoken over you. And I want you to consider, if these words are being spoken over you, how might they transform your identity? How might these things change you if these words were being spoken over you? So listen to this. Verse 14, Ananias says to you, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? What does it mean to hear those, those words? Well, there are three things that, that emerge out of this that I want to I point out to you. Three distinct things that are summed up in three very simple words. If you're taking notes, so you can write these things down. There are three categories that he touches on as it relates to identity. He talks about the will. He talks about our story. And then he talks about grace. The will, our story, the story. And he talks about grace, will, story, and grace. So I want to talk about this first one, the will. Ananias says to Paul, let me read it again. He says this to us. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. That is groundbreaking, identity-shaping language. God has appointed you to know his will. God has revealed. He's pulled back the curtain. He's opened the door. He's shown you the blueprints. This is my will. God showed Paul what he was up to in the world, and that changed everything for him. See, most of humanity, we, we, we just live according to our own will. That's the only will we ever know. We don't know God's will. We know our will. That's the only will we ever walk in. So what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? How do I want to make meaning out of this life? And inevitably, human beings will come to a point where they realized what a small and insignificant will that is. We, we plot along. We try to make the best of it. But our identity isn't rooted in anything bigger than our own desires. If we're living according to our will, our identity is rooted in our desires, which explains the volatility that we see in our culture right now. It's not just that I'm not getting what I want, but me getting what I want is the basis of my identity. So when I don't get what I want, that means I'm losing my sense of identity. That's what it means to live in our will. But what happens when God shows you his will? When you see his purpose in the world, when you understand the scope of what he's up to, and then you realize he's inviting you into it. No, no, listen, I have purposes that are beyond what you're seeing on the surface. I have purposes beyond what you're seeing in the year 2020. I have purposes beyond people, human beings, just getting what they want. When you see that, what does it do to you? When you understand that, when you begin to get a glimpse of that, it captures you. It captures your attention. It captures your imagination. And it captures your identity. 
It's no longer my will be done, but thy will be done. That's what happens. And that fundamentally changes who you are and how you move in the world and how you move through crazy days. It's not my will, but thy will. And so I'm going to move differently through this. When I was in college, I worked construction and uh, uh, just me and another guy uh, that I worked for. And, and I learned a lot during those days. And I remember there was this one particular day we were working on a kitchen remodel. And he sort of set me free in this one corner of the job site to build a wall. And so I was over there and he used to say I homesteaded. I took so long building stuff. He said, you're like homesteading the ground there. And pretty soon I'm gonna have a deed for it. But I was over there working one day and I'm building this wall. And uh, it was the most beautiful wall that I'd ever built in my life. And at one point, like later in the day, he comes over and he looks at it and he's scratching his head and he's looking at the plans and he kind of looks at it and he goes, ah, you know what? We messed up. Tear it down. And there was this thing that started to rise up inside of me, right? Like, do you understand how beautiful this wall is? This wall is the work of my hands. Like this wall is a beautiful wall, you know? And so I, I had this moment and then suddenly I realized he also pays me by the hour, Right? And if you want to pay me for the hours that I built the wall, and then you want to pay me for the hours that we're going to tear down the wall, and the hours that we're going to take to build another wall, well, not my will be done, but thy will be done, right? Like there was no need for me to fight for that wall to stay standing in that moment. And that's what happens, right? When God's will is revealed to us and we begin to live for his will instead of our will, it, it doesn't put the pressure on us like suddenly, oh man, I better get this right because now I'm working for God's will. It actually takes the pressure off of us, right? Oh God, you want me to do this? You want these circumstances? You want us to navigate this? Okay, it's not my will, but thy will be done. That's the way it works. Because my identity isn't found on the wall that I built. My identity is found in me doing what you want me to do. Now, I know some of you will say, well, what if God hasn't revealed his will to me? Right? I mean, what if God hasn't made that clear? Then what? And my answer to you is this. He already has. God has already made his will known. And maybe you say, well, how is that? I haven't had an experience like Paul. I didn't have a moment with Ananias like this. My answer to you is this. He's shown you Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the will of God. If you want to know what God's will is, the first thing you do is you look to the person of Jesus. Jesus, his life, his message, his work. It is the very revelation of God's will. So let me just, let me say this. The first step towards a stable identity is placing God's will above and over your own will. That's how you find a stable identity. It's not my will, but it's your will be done. Which then leads to the second word. And the second word I gave you earlier was, was the word story. Um, Ananias says this next to Paul. He says, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now, I know this probably makes us, us like a few of you nervous. Some of you get nervous with this. Like, what does it mean that I'm going to be a witness? Does that mean that I need to go buy a bullhorn and stand downtown and scream that the end is near? Is that what it means to be a witness? Or do I have to go door to door to my neighbors and like pass out little weird cartoon tracks and tell them, you know, like who Jesus is? Is that what it means that I'm going to be a witness? Like, is that what we're talking about? If you look closely at this, it answers this. He actually says, you will be a witness of what you have seen and you have heard. See, Paul is about to embark on a lifelong journey in which he would see and experience things that could only be explained by the presence and movement of Jesus in his story. 
and his identity is shifting to a place where he is now becoming a Jesus person. That's who he is becoming. He wasn't a person who had a job and a house and a family and a lifestyle, and then he also happened to believe in Jesus along with that. He was a Jesus person. He became a person who allowed Jesus into his story and he allowed his story to be crafted and written by Jesus. That's what I mean when I say he became a Jesus person. His story changed forever. And before I talk too much about him, let me just say, do you realize that you have a story? Maybe it's not Paul's story. It's not my story. But you have a story. You have a story of Jesus in your life. It is your story. And one of the reasons that Paul had so much confidence and such a deep sense of identity is that he wasn't trying to live somebody else's story and he wasn't feeding off of other people's experiences with Jesus. He had his own stories of Jesus moving in his own life. He wasn't finding his identity in someone else's experience with Jesus. He had his own experiences with Jesus. It's not about what they have seen. It's not about what they have done. It's about what I have seen and what I have done with Jesus. See, the focus, Ananias says, is what you have seen and what you have heard. Let me just, I'm going to share something that I think has been one of the most life-giving um, principles that I've learned as a follower of Jesus. And I also realize that as I share this, this is going to mess with some of you. And I just want to confess this, and yet I want to mess with you in Jesus' name right now, if that's okay. Um, I I've realized this th through, through the years of my life with Jesus. First of all, let me say, the more opportunity that I have to see Jesus in my story the more excited I become and the more life I find, right? The, the, the more opportunity, right? The more opportunity I have to say, man, you know what? There's a thing coming up and I think I'm gonna get to see Jesus moving in my life. I think his fingerprints are gonna be on my story. The more excited I become and the more life I found, the more I see him in my circumstances, the more life springs up inside of my soul. But let me also share this with you. And this is the part that might mess with you. I, I've discovered this, that the opportunities seem to increase in circumstances where the predictability decreases. Are you with me on this? The opportunity to see Jesus's fingerprints in my life seem to increase as the predictability of my life decreases. That's my experience. The more unpredictable, the more unprecedented, as we like to say in 2020 these days, the more unprecedented things are, the more likely I am to see Jesus moving in my life, the more I see him in my story. If, if your identity is, is built on being the kind of person who longs to see Jesus show up in the storyline of your life, then you become the kind of person who will weather the storms of life with supernatural stability. That's just the truth of this. In the middle of the storm, you say, well, there he is. There's Jesus in the middle of this. And people go, how are you so calm? Well, I see Jesus showing up in my circumstances. These are unprecedented, unpredictable days, and yet here's Jesus with me. Ananias said to Paul, he said, you've already got a story to tell about Jesus entering your circumstances. And you're going to have more stories to tell about Jesus entering your circumstances. You will tell people of the things that you have seen and you have heard. And when your posture changes, when you and I become people who have stories to tell, our identity shifts. Now I get to tell others, you know what? I saw God show up in this way in my life. 
We become witnesses. I am no longer an aimless wanderer. I am now a witness. So we have the will and we have story. And then finally, the third word that I gave you is the word grace. Ananias said to Paul, he said, and why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I love that he says this. He says, why do you wait? You know, here's Paul. He's been persecuting Christians. He's blinded miraculously on a road. He's led to the city of Damascus. After a day, he meets a random stranger who tells him all these things. Then he says, what are you waiting for, man? Just jump into this. And let me just say, if I'm Paul, I'll tell you why I'm waiting. I'm waiting because who's going to believe this has happened after all the things I've done? Who's going to trust me? Like, you expect me to show up 48 hours later and say, hey, Christians, I actually really like you guys now. I know, like yesterday I wanted to kill you, but today I'm one of you. Like, are are people going to believe this? Why do you wait? That's why I wait, right? What if my story comes back to haunt me? What if my weaknesses bear their ugly head? I think those are questions that all of us ask when it comes to following Jesus, right? Why do you wait? Why do you pause? Well, because I know how broken I am. I know how weak I am. I know that I got things in my story that I don't want people to find out about. I know that there's things that I'm ashamed of. I know that if you really knew me, you might not come to church here. You know, we think those things, right? We think about that stuff. Which is why, which is why these specific words that he speaks are so important. He says, wash away your sins and call upon his name. Call on his name. This is critically important for us to understand, not just as individuals, but for us as B4 Church, for Bridgeport Church. This is important for us all to understand. If we are participating in the way of Jesus, this is essential for us to get. Why does he say this? Why does he say, call on his name? Why are you, wait, why are you waiting? Call on his name. Why does he say this? And why is this so critical? Because our identity is not in what we have done or what we can do or what we will do. Our identity is what Jesus has done and can do and will do. Let me say that again. Our identity is not in what we have done, not in what we can do, or not even in what we will do. But our identity is in what Jesus has done and what Jesus can do and what Jesus will do. And I love that Ananias uses this word wash, right? He says, wash away your sins, wash away your brokenness, wash those things away. In other words, your brokenness is no longer your story. You being able to do this or not do this, that's no longer what this is about. This isn't about your effort or your energy. Wash those things away. That's that's who Jesus says you are. Whatever you thought you were, forget about those things. Jesus says, this isn't you. Those things in your past, those things you're afraid of, those things you think that are going to creep up in the night and and remind everybody who you used to be. He says, you have a new identity. You have a new identity and it's not found in what you can or will do. It is found in what I have done and what I will do. So call upon his name. Call upon his name, not your name. Call upon his name. If you call upon your name, you know what you get? you get all kinds of insecurity. (laughs) If you call upon your name, you're going to get all kinds of pressure. Call upon your name, you're going to get all kinds of disappointment. You're going to get all kinds of anxiety. But you call upon his name, and you get peace. You call upon his name, and you get 
humble confidence. You call upon his name and you will discover an identity that results in stability. I'm going to call on your name. It's not about me or what I do. It's about you and what you've done. And now I can move through uncertainty with stability. You know, there's a word um, that I've heard people use right now, and I think it helps define what folks are feeling in our culture right now. And it's the word disenchanted. People are just sort of disenchanted with life right now, right? They're sort of looking at all the things, all the things we thought made up life, and we're just sort of disenchanted. And, and it kind of describes, you probably agree if you're watching this, if you're in the room, you probably agree that there's a lot of disenchantment with our, our society and our culture right now, with what used to kind of provide joy and peace for people. What's interesting about that word disenchantment, I like that word, but I like it because of how, how it was originally used. Originally, the word disenchantment was used to describe the moment when a spell that had been cast by an evil sorcerer had been broken and there was an opportunity to escape. Are people disenchanted right now? I believe they are. I believe the spell has been broken. I believe the lies of our culture are being revealed. I believe there's a transparency to what's really going on. And I think there's an opportunity for human beings in this day to respond and seize this moment, to find an identity that is beyond our own will, to find an identity that transforms our story, to find an identity that lives out a life that is characterized by grace and not striving. That's what is before us right now. So right now, I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to close us in, in worship tonight. And, and as they come up, I just think it's a time for us to pause. And I think this is always important that we don't just like sort of hear this and then just like move away from this. But I think it's really important that we take time to just go, okay, where am I with this? Where do I really find my identity? And, and let me just, let me ask you, to, like, if you want to ask the question, how do I know if my identity is really in Christ? Well, let me ask you this. How volatile are your emotions right now? How volatile are your responses to what's happening in our culture? How, how, how out of place, how out of joint are you right now when you see the circumstances that are taking place? Are they spinning you out? Are they wrecking you? Are you losing even a sense of who you are in this? Well, then it's likely that you've tied your identity to those things. And Jesus stands before you and he says, I have something else for you. There's an identity that will give you stability and it's found in me. That's what it means to find your identity in Christ. So let's take a moment right now and, and, and reflect. You can sing along, you can pray, you can just allow your heart to be examined and I'll come back in just a moment and I'll close us in a benediction.
know, while we were worshiping, um, I couldn't help but have this picture that, you know, there's a posture to availability. And that posture is open hands, that we open our hands. And, and there's something like relaxing, there's something um, relieving just about sort of holding your hands out and saying, no, I'm available. This is the posture of availability, right? And as we're worshiping there, I just, I, I realize that the posture in our culture right now that seems to be the posture that's more prevalent than anything is this posture, you know, like it's, it's fists that are clenched, fists that are fighting, right? And, and those are fists that are characterized by grabbing and holding on to whatever you can hold on to. We, we're singing about availability. That's the invitation of Jesus. Will you just make yourself available to this? And when you release and when you relinquish, there's this peace and there's this joy and there's this lightness. But if you don't, there's just this clenched fist. You're white knuckling, you're fighting, you're grasping for whatever you can. And you, you know, when I, when I look at Paul's defense as he's standing on those stairs and he's, he's telling people like, this is who I was and then this is what happened and now this is who I am. He's not just offering a defense, but he's also offering an invitation the invitation for a new identity. But I find it really interesting that if you read in other places in the New Testament, when Paul talks about identities, he talks about the self and he actually describes it. He says, you have to take off the old self and you have to put on the new self. In other words, you have to allow your old identity to be deconstructed and then you have to have your new identity rebuilt. And I think what's happening in our culture right now, like as we speak, identities are being deconstructed the fabric of where people find their identity is being torn apart. But for most people living in our day, they have no other alternative. They just know life is just sort of crumbling around me and I don't know what else to do. And so they're just grasping for the threads and saying, how do I hold on to something? And yet all of us who have watched this, all of us who have been in the room tonight, we have an alternative. We have an invitation. Paul stands at the top of these stairs and he looks at people grasping for life and he says, just open up your hands. Make yourself available. Allow God's identity, allow the identity of Christ to be ushered in. And so, may we be men and women, may you be men and women who say, not my will, but thy will be done. May we be men and women who say, Jesus, enter into my story, even if it means that I'm living through unprecedented times. May we be men and women who say, it is not my work, but it is the work of Jesus Christ that covers me. It is your grace. May you be covered with the grace of Jesus, and may you be gracious because of it. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You guys, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us online it is amazing, amazing to be worshiping, and I just look forward to what God is doing in our time. I truly believe that God is moving in ways that we've not seen in a very long time, and I love praying and thinking about the future. So we love you guys, and we will see you all really soon. See you later.